You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, and welcome to the first BMJ podcast of 2012. This week, missing child data. It's been a known threat for many years, particularly highlighted by cases where drug companies have concealed data, such as with Vioxx and Tamiflu. But a cluster of papers in this week's BMJ show pharmaceutical industry misconduct is not the only cause and that the culture of medical science contributes to the large proportion of evidence being unreported or done so inadequately. Later, we'll hear from Richard Riley, a senior lecturer in medical statistics at Birmingham University, about how meta-analyses which use individual participant data aren't as balanced as we may think. But first, BMJ's clinical editor Elizabeth Loder talks to Harlan Krumholtz, Harold H. Hines Jr. Professor of Medicine at Yale University, and also Joseph Ross, Assistant Professor of Medicine also at Yale, about missing data from US publicly funded trials. Also joining the discussion is Lisa Barrow, Professor at the Department of Clinical Pharmacy, University of California, who describes how adding missing data to meta-analyses of drug trials can change the results. Thanks to all of you for being here today to discuss some of the papers that will be highlighted in the upcoming theme issue on unpublished evidence. Let me start with you, Dr. Ross, and ask you to briefly describe the background to your paper, perhaps beginning with a brief overview of the United States requirements for publicly funded trials to have results posted somewhere. There aren't specific requirements that apply to all government-funded trials. Since the 2007 passage of the Food, Drug, and Administration Amendment Act, that now requires the sponsors uh, or designated principal investigators of nearly all non-Phase one trials to both register their trials in a clinical trial registration website, or such as clinicaltrials.gov, and now requires results to be reported approximately a year after completion of the trial. So we've known for a long time that um, not all trials that are completed and done are published in the medical literature, but in this uh, specific paper, what we wanted to do was really hone down and focus on when the NIH funds or uh, is a contributing funder to research, does that research get published more often or less often, and how quickly does it take, uh, does it get published in the medical literature? We've been focusing so much of our attention on industry and and you know, our concern that industry was holding back data, there's certainly plenty of examples where there has been maybe uh, a profit motive behind uh, lagging in, in publishing, but we wanted to think about whether this was a more pervasive issue, and we thought looking at federally funded grants and the trials that are done as a result of NIH funding might give us some sense of whether or not there's more at play here than just um, you know, financial incentives and whether or not there's a culture in medicine that may be contributed to from a variety of different directions that may be uh, bringing us to the situation where a lot of trials uh, successfully completed don't really see the light of day, or they, when they do, it's, it's long after they've been completed. And what did you find, uh, Drs. Ross and Krumholtz? Sure. What we were able to do is use the clinical trials of trial registry to identify a series of trials uh, sponsored by the NIH that were registered um, after the requirements to register had been implemented, uh, but were finished uh, by a period in 2008, giving 30 months for the trial uh, to, once it was finished, to get published in the medical literature. 
So you were very generous in the amount of time you allowed to have elapsed before you looked for evidence of publication or other dissemination. And and there's no question that the trials you looked at should have been available or the results should have been available in some format. Is that correct? You know, I I mean, I'd go further. I mean, I think 30 months is a... It is an amazing amount of time to give people to get it into the literature. And at least, you know, the question is, you know, can't there be some place where this thing can be published? I mean, these have been funded by federal grants. Okay, I could see where maybe a small percentage of them might have run into trouble, maybe the design issues, maybe enrollment issues, maybe in the end the study's not as strong as was envisioned. But these all went through stringent peer review. And the investigators should be prepared. They should be poised to get this into print as soon as possible. And I would hope within six months and maybe within 12. The value of the information decays over time. It's never more valuable than the day the trial is done. And every day that passes, it becomes less useful because of other competing information that comes out and the timing of the care that was being provided in the context of the trial. So when we see that fewer than half are published within 30 months, I mean, that should be ringing alarm bells. You make a very important point about the idea that there must be somewhere that these trials can be published. There are all sorts of open access and other journals now that agree to publish pretty much any sort of research provided it was done in a reasonable manner. And perhaps there's just a lack of will on the part of these investigators. Do you want to speculate a bit uh, about what you think might be the problems? It is very speculative. I mean, my, my concern is that people finish the trials and they're already moving on to the next project, and they don't, in fact, prioritize publication as highly as they do of getting the next grant or get, you know, looking for the next source of funding. And perhaps even people move on to the next idea. And you know, a trial is a big endeavor, and once you've been working, you know, for a long period of time, you get it all finished. If the result isn't as promising as you, you'd like, you know, maybe people move on. Yeah, and I think our intent is not to blame anyone, but surely. The, co- the contributors to this problem are are, uh, are many. You know that there may be some part of the investigator side. There may be some part on the difficulty in the journal side. There may be even some parts on the bureaucratic side that are impeding this. But look, we have patients who have agreed to be subjects in studies predicated on, I believe, their belief that their effort, their time, their risk is going to pay dividends by generating new knowledge that will help others. And we're betraying that trust by not getting these studies out in a timely way. And we are hampering the medical literature. And, in fact, I see this as a critical threat to to the evidence base for medicine. And uh, one last question to you, Drs. Ross and Krumholtz. Um, I had a journalist ask me about, uh, well, if this is such a problem, who's harmed? Can you point to patients or instances of actual harm from this problem? I think patients are harmed. Uh, It would have been useful for many patients to know that Vioxx might have been associated with cardiovascular harm in 2001 rather than when uh, Merck pulled it off the market in 2004. It might have been useful for people to know that Avandia might be associated with cardiovascular risk much earlier than than occurred because of the litigation causing data to be freed from GlaxoSmithKline. For all of these studies at the NIH, I mean, they go through rigorous peer review. Someone has deemed that this information has value. Millions of dollars are being spent to generate this knowledge. If we are to say there's no harm in non-publication or delayed publication, then that's coming back to us and saying we've wasted our money. Why did we even invest in these studies if we don't care about the results? And although it's difficult to draw a link between a trial result and an individual patient, there's no question that there's, there's major harm being, being done. 
Thanks, Dr. Kromholtz. That's a very powerfully made uh, point, I think. On to you, Dr. Barrow. Um, if you'd like to summarize briefly what your group did and then tell us what you found when you did incorporate unpublished evidence into existing research summaries, I think we'd all be interested to hear. So uh, we're interested in uh, drugs, new molecular entities. And so basically these are drugs that are newly approved on the U.S. Uh, market and they're novel drugs. And so our idea is that physicians and patients should have available to them all the information on these uh, newly uh, approved drugs. So in 2008, we published a paper where we looked at all applications for these new drugs that had been approved by the FDA over a two-year period. And we got what was available publicly from the FDA, so not the full application, but what are called the statistical and medical officer reports. And we went through these reports to identify all the efficacy trials that the FDA reviewed. And the bottom line was that for 24 drugs approved over this period, we found uh, 299 outcomes were not reported in the medical literature. So basically, the only place you could find them was buried in these FDA uh, reports. They were either from completely unpublished uh, trials, or the trials were published, but not all the outcomes were published. And that's an important point, because even if you get a trial published, you might not be getting all the data still in the medical literature. So this paper that we're we're publishing in the special issue is um, a follow-up to that, because we're interested, if we have unpublished drug outcomes, what are the downstream effects in the medical literature? Does this affect meta-analyses that are published in the medical literature? And these meta-analyses are often a basis for clinical practice guidelines. We started with these 24 drugs that had unpublished outcomes, and we attempted to identify meta-analyses that would have included uh, these outcomes. Uh, What we found, interestingly, um, is that for 15 drugs, there were no published meta-analyses at all. And one reason for this might be that if there's nothing out there in the published literature, maybe people aren't even going to do a meta-analysis. So uh, having unpublished data might actually be driving the research questions. So what we did find was that there were uh, nine drugs that contained meta-analyses that should have contained these unpublished uh, outcomes. So our hypothesis was that when we included in these unpublished outcomes uh, into the meta-analysis, that it would make the drugs look less efficacious. But interestingly, we found that in only about half of uh, the meta-analyses. Half of them went in one direction, and half of them went in the other direction, and a small proportion stayed uh, neutral. What it did show us was that including this unpublished data was actually quite important because, one, you couldn't predict um, the effect of including it by drug, and you even couldn't predict it by outcome. So, for example, for one drug, there were six outcomes, and three went in one direction and three went in the other direction. We think that this emphasizes how important it is to search for these unpublished data from regulatory databases and include them in meta-analysis. Thank you, Dr. Barrow. Yes, I have to say I found that result quite unexpected and counterintuitive and very, very interesting. Can I ask you, do you think that the state of affairs will improve going forward? I think we have a long way to go. And one of the reasons is that uh, I'm still not sure that all results will be reported for an individual trial. 
Um, the emphasis has been on having primary outcomes reported, and what we saw in our papers is that often you can't even tell what the primary outcome is, and um, you see publication um, bias for primary and secondary outcomes. And of course, meta-analyses are based on whether there's a, um, a clinically important outcome uh, that, that is the basis of the question, and not necessarily primary and secondary. So I think we really need to keep emphasizing that all outcomes have to be uh, reported. And then the second issue, and we had uh, uh, great difficulty with this, is that even when these data are made available, they have to be made available in a usable uh, form. So, for example, in the FDA data we were looking at, um, sometimes we didn't have uh, data on variants. Uh, sometimes we were missing some data, so we couldn't actually uh, include it in the meta-analysis. It's very, very difficult to go through these reports and tease out this data. Um, there's no systematic format in which these uh, reports are presented. So I think we have to do um, a lot to make sure that uh, unpublished data are reported in a usable format. So you're actually, it sounds like you're heading toward recommending more standardized um collection of information perhaps on clintrials.gov or some of the other trial registration websites initially so that it's clearer what the primary outcomes and secondary outcomes are, and then reporting in more standardized formats as well. Right. I, I think standardization would really, really help. Skeptic might look at your results and say, well, well, yeah, the summary estimates change a bit in one direction or another, but is it really clinically meaningful? One has to remember that Clinical effects are usually uh, quite small, <laughs> those that are reported in uh, in the literature. And so even a small change uh, in a measured outcome might be clinically meaningful. And I also think it's important to look across the full uh, spectrum of outcomes for a, um, a, a drug. So uh, the one I pointed out before, one of the anti-migraine medicines, you know, we basically see that the effect at the longer time points goes away and it's maintained at a shorter um uh, time point. So that gives me a different clinical uh, impression of the effect of that uh, drug. Um, and then for other drugs, we see that uh, there's a, a dose-response relationship just disappears. And one would think that as you um, increase the dose of a drug, uh, you would see a bigger effect. And so if you don't see that, it just doesn't really uh, make sense. And so it might make you um, question whether that drug really is as effective as it would seem. So I do think that, um, you know, small effects can be clinically meaningful. I do think we need to look at the full picture for the drug. Dr. Barrow, should journal editors and others, peer reviewers perhaps, be insisting that authors of meta-analyses make more strenuous efforts and report on their efforts to identify unpublished data? Oh, I think so, yes. And, uh I know in the Cochrane Collaboration, uh, we're actually conducting a little study right now to um, assess how Cochrane investigators uh, are looking for uh, unpublished data, and uh, we're actually going to be uh, reevaluating um, our current uh, recommendations for searching for uh, unpublished uh, data. So I do think this is something that in the future uh, journal editors uh, should be asking for. Richard Riley has also co-authored a paper on how missing data affects meta-analyses. He's looked at those that use individual participant data, where analysts have acquired raw data from study authors rather than just use reported results. 
However, he's shown that these are still susceptible to bias. I spoke to him earlier. Well, previously people would always call an IPD meta-analysis the gold standard. One of the reasons people suggested is that it solves the issue of publication bias. You're not reliant on how studies were reported. Um, you've got the raw data. You can get what you want. You're in control. But what my paper um, with Iqlaq Ahmed and Alex Sutton has um, shown is that, unfortunately, we've still got many areas where bias can creep in. Three particular ones that we looked at were publication bias, reviewer selection bias, and unavailability of data. For publication bias, now IPD meta-analysis may solve this problem if you get the raw data from unpublished studies, but what, what our review shows is that on many occasions, IPD meta-analyses only get IPD from published studies. So the same problem um, exists. The other two forms of bias that I just mentioned, the first one is reviewer selection bias. What um, organizations like the Cochrane Collaboration um, recommend is that people do a systematic review before doing a meta-analysis and then try and extract the study results or in our situation get the IPD from all the studies that they've identified by that review. We found that um, many IPD meta-analysis papers do not use that systematic review approach, or, or certainly don't state that they do. And the concern is that they're just selecting studies that they know about. And after that stage, unfortunately, there's another problem. And that is the fact that when you ask for IPD from study authors, often they don't agree to give it to you. They may have um, lost their data. It may have been done quite a long time ago, and they may have destroyed it. They may not want to collaborate with you. It may be that they still want to look at the data. They've not finished exploring it. The reliability of the conclusions from an IPD meta-analysis are in doubt when you've got any of these issues. And in our paper, we talk about some things we, you can try and do to um, address that. So you could look for the summary results from those studies that don't give you the IPD and see whether the summary results correspond to the results you can get from the IPD studies. Mm. Do they seem to be different types of studies? Do their results seem to be consistent with what you're seeing in the IPD that you've got? For publication biases, there's, there's guidelines recently published in the BMJ about assessing potential publication bias in metronophis, in particular looking at funnel plots and asymmetry in funnel plots. So is there any other legislation or, or requirements that you think w would help mitigate this? What we need to do is, is to move to a point where raw data is, is more freely available for the purposes of research. What we'd like, obviously, is that people, study authors, researchers, healthcare professionals are willing to provide their raw data routinely. I do have... Um, sympathy with this in lots of ways because you know people who've done trials they may take 10 15 years to do those trials so for somebody like me you know a meta analyst who just emails them and says can I have your data that's a big ask but ultimately you know patients have have given their consent to improve clinical practice 
So we do need to move somehow to be in a position to ensure that people are providing their IPD. Now, one way that we can try and do that is by setting up maybe collaborative groups in each disease field where people agree in advance of their trials to provide their IPD for meta-analysis. Maybe prospectively come up with some set standards about what they're going to record in their data set. People tend to call this a prospective IPD meta-analysis. The biggest problem with meta-analysis really, when you, when you think about it, is it's mostly retrospective. Even when you do get the individual patient data, there's still many problems when you actually get the raw data because of missing values. Maybe some people have recorded um, particular prognostic factor characteristics in their data set and other people haven't. And it can take many months and many years to actually clean the data just to do an IPD meta-analysis. So we can do things prospectively, plan ahead, and think about how we can work better with other researchers in our own disease field then maybe, just maybe, that will be the best thing that we can do and solve these problems as far as possible. Thanks very much. And now let me close by asking if any of you have any final remarks, comments. No, I mean, I'd just like to say I hope this issue of the BMJ attracts considerable attention to what is a real threat in medicine. There is now becoming, a, 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 I think, a widespread interest in addressing this, I know that in Europe and, and through efforts of the Cochrane Collaboration and others and in the U.S., uh, there's a considerable momentum growing about trying to look at this issue. We're conducting a project with Medtronic where, uh, as they were being assailed for concerns about the safety of one of their drugs, they, they determined that it was in their interest and they wanted to provide uh, an opportunity to release all of their data related to that drug. And that was an unprecedented move, and I'm looking for other companies to do the same. I'm looking for the NIH to develop strategies to help their investigators to get information out faster once trials are completed. I mean, it's time for us to recognize that in an information field like medicine that we need to get the information out quickly and well in order to be confident that we're making the best decisions uh, for our patients. Thanks very much to all of you. As we've dedicated the BMJ this week to missing data, there's plenty more in print and online exploring the issue. And the press have picked up on it too, to hear our editor Fiona Godley and neuroscientist Colin Blakemore on Radio 4's Today programme take a look at their archive from Wednesday the 4th of January. One last thing, an update for you on our Christmas appeal. So far we've raised over £12,000 from our print readers alone, to buy pulse oximeters to ensure safer surgery. A huge thank you to those of you who have already donated, and if anyone else would like to help, you can at lifebox.org forward slash donations. Thanks for joining us this week. Goodbye. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.